What's up, everybody? Let's spin some yarn. Hey, uh, I had an interesting conversation today. This probably be a, probably a quick one. I say that it's probably gonna be long because I like to talk. That's the reason why I left work as late as I did today. Plan on leaving earlier, but I started talking, uh, and I was talking to uh, my HM1, uh, awesome dude. Uh, one of the one of the guys I feel like you know doing it right, um, and. He's still learning though, right? He's still figuring it out. He's still figuring out um, how to be a submariner and then how to be a leader because the way that his career progressed, right? Like this is probably the first time he's he's been in the position that he's in in ways, right? Like he had been an LPO before, um, so he's got that experience for sure. But he uh, he's grown a lot in the you know, year and a half that I've known him. And we have a lot of conversations about uh, leadership um, and the development of leaders. And today uh, we had a conversation about something else and it kind of <laughs> went the direction that it always does. And we were talking about, uh, we were talking about um, basically like the expectations that we set uh, and we being the Navy, the organization, right? We set a lot of expectations. We create this idea in everyone's head of fleet expectations and, the, and we set these standards and we teach you these things uh, during initial accession training, right? Like in boot camp, you're taught how to march, you're taught how to iron your uniform and polish your boots and, uh, and you know, facing movements and how to military courtesy, right? Like how to greet people, um, the correct way to address seniors and subordinates. Um, there's a lot of things that we, we, and we take them very seriously, watch standing and uh, PT and all, there's all these constructs that we put into place during initial accession training at RTC and then even in A schools and uh, the C schools that can follow and the, and the training pipelines. And then they go to the fleet and, and this was a point that my doc made and you know, like I, it's one of those, I've always thought about it, but I've never, this, this perspective that he gave me was super interesting where it was just like, welcome to the fleet and the bottom falls out. Right. And, and they fall and fall and then they bounce off the floor and pick themselves up and essentially get molded into whatever they get molded into by, uh, the characters that they happen to encounter in the fleet. So they, they leave that cocoon, right, of all these standards and this rigid formality and, and military courtesy and, and all these things. And then it's, then they walk across the brow of a ship, a submarine or, you know, wherever they end up and they immediately get knocked down a couple of notches. Like that's not how we do it in the fleet. Every one of us heard that. In some in some version, every one of us heard that comment. It's not how we do it in the fleet. You don't got to call me petty officer anymore, right? Like I remember getting laced by somebody for calling him petty officer. Like this dude destroyed me, and, and I didn't know what to make of that because just like many people do, I had a romanticized vision of what the military was in my mind. And when I went to the fleet, it was going to be all these things I saw on Top Gun, like, and I was telling Doc. I watched Men of Honor and the movie Pearl Harbor had just come out. That's how old I am. Uh, and I watched those things 20 times, 30 times before I, I left for boot camp. 
uh, I thought that's what the military was going to be. I thought that everybody's chest was going to be puffed out, you know, full of pride, all the tradition and heritage and just the, you know, that, that stuff that we romanticize, you know, like that, you know, there's moments, few moments, but they're there where that kind of stuff happens, right? I, the day I got pinned to chief was one of those moments, right? Like that kind of stuff, but they're few and far between. And the reality is when we get to the fleet, all the things we were taught to expect, you don't, they don't materialize. Like you don't see them. They're not there. And so it's almost like we're creating a false expectation. We're telling them this is the way that it's going to be. And then they get out to the fleet and it's not that way. And that false expectation sets the tone for someone's first enlistment in the military. And I feel like I harp on the lack of leadership development and education all the time. And I do think that is the primary problem. And I think this falls into it, as I've talked about before, right? But I think that you lose so many of the bright, high-functioning people that we talk about needing to retain and the high-quality leadership-type folks that we need to keep around to that to that process, right, where I see a lot of them, and I've had conversations with junior sailors that have done this. I One in particular that I, I think she still listens to the podcast. I don't know. She did initially. And she was a reservist, and I remember her talking to me about some of the struggles she had as a class leader when she was a student. Um, and it was it reminded me of those conversations that I have with these sailors that want to be these leaders that that turn their divisions not just into good technicians but good sailors and was really committed to that end but had a really hard time figuring it out like figuring out how how do I get them to do that how do I get them to buy in and go the direction I want them to go like hot and and take some ownership of that stuff that we looked for when we first joined the military in the first place. Like, everybody's got a hoo button. Everybody does. I don't care how jaded and bitter and angry you are. Everybody's got a hoo button. And if you find the way to push it, then you're going to get that, you know, chest puffed out pride, pride-filled response. You're going to find it. But you have to figure out how to push that button, right? And, and we do that in boot camp. God, we're good at it. In boot camp, we do it. RDCs are masters at it, right? I cried like a baby when I got that Navy ball cap. And if you say you didn't, you are lying to yourself, right? And, and I remember what that felt like. Uh, my RDC was crying. And that <laughs> to this day, that dude would say he wasn't, but he was. He was so proud of everybody in that room and what he had done, what he had created, um, that that kind of moment, like they're so good at creating those. They're good at creating them in any kind of military ceremony, right? Go to a retirement ceremony. I mean, I, it's it's something that we know how to do, but we reserve it for those special moments. And I, and I understand why we do that, but what I don't understand is why we don't convert that that ability to push that hoo button and get people to respond to it to everything. And I'm not a Marine. 
I've known a bunch and I've watched the way that they do things. I got to work really closely with the Marine Corps detachment on my, on my last shore duty when I was an instructor. And the way that they approach military bearing and ceremony and just military courtesy, if you call a staff sergeant a sergeant, you will get corrected. That is not a sergeant, that is a staff sergeant, right? Or that is a gunnery sergeant. Like, it's a big deal. They earned every inch of wherever they're at and they take it seriously. Like, they, they take a lot of pride if it, in being a Marine. Like, that is, it's incredibly important. And, and you know, they're, they're junior enlisted military members just like everybody else, but whatever they do, to instill that that thing into them and continue to do it I feel like that's what we're missing they're still they still have fun they still do a lot of the things that we do they still we can relate in a lot of ways but there's that thing where they just they get that right where these Marines yeah I and they, I'm sure they exist, but I have never in my entire 16 and a half year career in this Navy seen a Marine look unsat in their uniform, ever. And I know that it exists. Like I've seen pictures on the internet, right? But I've never actually seen it in real life. And I mean, there was 500 Marines on post all the time. I saw, and it was a revolving door because it was a training command. I never once, and I check, it was a training command. I got it. I've seen Marines all kinds of other places too. Never seen a Marine look look bad in uniform. And I'm talking like they look good in their uniforms all the time. So why? How do they accomplish that? How do... I walk down a sidewalk. I got a Marine Corps Security Forces uh, Battalion on the Navy base that I work at. I walk by Marines every day. Every single one of them says, good afternoon, Senior Chief. Every single time. That's impressive. That's how that should be. I, However they accomplish that, however they hardwire that, into the DNA, DNA of these Marines as they're building them. Like, why aren't we doing that? And then, upon doing that, the, the bottom doesn't fall out. When they get to the fleet, it's the same thing. Then we're getting the training value we need out of this process. I just saw an article yesterday where they're expanding uh, Army infantry training. Like, I think it's from... 14 to 22 weeks how huge would it be if they extended recruit training from 8 to 14 weeks 16 weeks and they were able to incorporate a ton of training of significant substance that made all these sailors better sailors and better warfighters because that's what the aim is right is secretary mattis wants all these soldiers to be more lethal warfighters so what does he do he extends infantry training and he's going to build in a whole bunch of awesome stuff to make all these soldiers better infantrymen so they're going to go out to the regular army ready to go with a lot more skills and experience than they had previous that's I mean, if you get the chance, read the article 
Uh, I, I think Navy Time shared it. I liked so much crap on Facebook. I'm not really sure where I read it, but it's out there. Find that article and read it. And then think to yourself, how unbelievable and far-reaching the impact would be if they invested that kind of time and money into initial accession training, wherever it happened to go. I'd like to see it go to submarine school too and to A schools. But just the, the way that they're doing that if they were able to teach people ship handling and damage control on a much larger scale, because it's a huge part of being a submariner, damage control. And, you know, you get five seconds of it in boot camp, and it's more of a team-building ex- exercise than it is anything. And we get a little more of it in sub-school, right? But, you know, am I ready to efficiently don an EAB, grab some kind of an extinguishing agent, and combat a fire when I get to a submarine? Absolutely not. They have to teach me that when I get there. It's part of my normal qualification process. What if I knew that already? What if I was proficient? What if I could fight a fire when I step on board a submarine day one? How big of a deal would that be? I had a conversation with the upper chain of command the other day where they said, what if this uh, you know, shore-based entity took over gun shoots and all the sailors that checked in on board were qualified small arms when they got to the ship? And everybody in the room about jumped out of their chair to get behind that idea and push. Because gun shoots are a huge, like, burden on our ability to do a ton of other things. So you have to send pretty much everybody over to a gun range. It's an all-day affair where they have to shoot the M9. Then they shoot the M500. Then they shoot the M16. And then some people need other courses of fire. And blah, blah, blah. Right? Like... It's a, it's a large commitment of time and effort on the part of, in our case, all our torpedo men. I'm sure you guys have like gunner's mates uh, or something, someone else that does the range masterpiece and, 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 you know, coordinates it all and supervises and safety monitors and all that stuff. Um, I think range safety officers is what they call them. Uh, some, some guy does that, blah, blah, blah. Like there's a lot of support from those guys. There's a lot of just bandwidth and man hours of all those personnel having to go to the gun range and shoot. What if they showed up qualified already and all we have to do is, you know, do their proficiency training later? Because you can get them qualified at gun watch pretty quick and they're supporting the watch bill inside like in a couple weeks. But a lot of times you're waiting on guys to get gun shoots. They're in a duty section. They're not doing anything. Right? Like, if you can, if you can find ways like that to make everybody more efficient, more lethal, more prepared... And part of that, God, a huge part of that is is the initial accession training, right? If we got to a point where all those standards were created and all those, uh, those things, that stuff we look for was built into these sailors' DNA and they had their chest puffed out and they had the pride of being a sailor that they do at the moment they put that Navy ball cap on and retained it the way these Marines do then showed up to a ship and it got reinforced instead of shot down, right? That's interesting. Because I, I, I always kind of knew, everybody knows that, right? The the drop, it's in that cheesy first 72 hours video, right? Where like, uh, they you know, guy shows up, you know, motivated, ready to go. And then the first 72 hours on board the ship, you know, it falls in with the wrong crowd, gets in trouble, blah, blah, blah. And then they give you like an alternative view of what happened if he didn't do that. As cheesy as it is, it's real. And it's real in that 
when you first report to that that ship, that submarine, whatever, you are greeted with a different reality than you were briefed and trained on when you first joined it. And you're briefed and trained on kind of this romanticized reality that got you in in the first place. We create a false expectation. And then we wonder why we struggle to retain the best and brightest because we ba- we're basically lying to them. Um, but what if we didn't? What if we didn't do that? And then what if upon fixing that, they expanded the training in the same way that they're doing right now? I was super excited and encouraged when I saw that article about the Army Infantry training get ex- getting expanded because if that's happening, you got to think the conversation's going to come up. At some point, do we need to do this to a service that's having the issues that it's having right now? Right? There's been a lot of major ship collisions. There's been a lot of disciplinary issues at very high levels. There's been a lot of other things that make you question, are we doing all the right things to prepare people to succeed in the roles that they're in? What if we did and I'm interested to hear from you guys, as always. Like, what if we did, and how would we do it? What would it look like? Where where does it need to happen? How does it need to happen? I, you know, I got really excited, and my mind started racing when I saw that article. And then me and Doc had this conversation today, and it kind of struck me like, wow, like, what if? What if they put those kind of resources and added that time, that training time, to RTC? and gave them the resources and people and money they need to prepare sailors for the fleet and then create a reality. And the the hard part, obviously, is how do we create that reality out in the fleet? Because you gotta think there's retraining that needs to happen, right? You gotta think that, uh, the example I like to use a lot is culinary specialists. Our training is not effective. I, I struggled with it as an A school instructor where I, you know, it, it, it takes the civilian sector at minimum six months to get an initial entry level culinarian on a, on a line as an effective cook, especially essentially like a cook on watch in the civilian sector to, to finish an accelerated certificate program in any respected culinary school in the civilian sector, six months. Most of them are a year. And then obviously associate's degrees are two years. An associate degree and some certifications with some experience could get you into a like a, you know, 30-ish thousand dollar a year sous chef job, which is like an assistant to the executive chef, right? And every, you know, every kitchen is structured differently, but that's essentially where it could get you. So these one-year certificate programs or the accelerated ones that are about six months, I mean, that's like, you're going to be making 15 bucks an hour to, to work a line entry level and learn the rest and get more experience and work your way up. And we got 25 training days at CSA school and people sit sit there wondering why guys are showing up unprepared because it's, it is impossible to turn out an efficient cook on watch in 25 training days. You can't do it. And we got to do a bunch of other stuff while they're there. I mean, you do what you can in the time that you have, but honestly, like they show up 
with a basic level of knowledge in sanitation and, you know, a couple other things. But, I mean, they have no idea how to cook. Unless they had prior experience outside of the military. They have no idea what they're doing. So you have to teach them on the ship how to do their job. What do we got an A school for? If I got to teach them how to do it when they get to me, just send them to me. Skip it. And I've been saying for, for a long, long time that we ought to just pay a civilian culinary school to teach them how to cook, and then we'll teach them the Navy part, or you, you're going to have to do a significant amount of retraining. Because for, for as long as I've been around, there's been no significant formal culinary training for a normal Navy cook. Um, unless you go get a civilian culinary degree. I had a lot of experience before I joined the Navy, and then I went and got a fancy culinary degree on my first shorty. That's how why I know how to do what I what I know how to do. But none of these guys have the training level of knowledge they need to succeed. And you would have to retrain a ton of culinary specialists that are more senior to be the instructors. Unless you farmed it out to culinary schools, which you can't do for every rating in the Navy, right? So, anyway, hopefully this starts a conversation. Uh, That's what I got for you today. Uh, I thought it was an interesting conversation between me and my doc, and it got me thinking about a lot of other things based on these little nuggets I picked up over the last couple of days. And uh, I thought it'd be a cool thing to talk about, about the that big disparity between what we start with and then what we see when we first step on board a ship and we get that welcome to the fleet moment. Uh, Always open to feedback. Hit us up. Don't give up the ship podcast at gmail.com. You can Facebook message us or you can DM us on Instagram at DGets Podcast. Uh, as always, thank you for listening and don't give up the ship. Ship.